Brian Miller here with this week's episode of Go and Make. You know, we recently got some uh, some feedback online from someone who was talking about how the podcast has helped them make evangelization accessible, and they were happy that we weren't, uh, you know, using too many technical terms or going over people's heads too much. It was really accessible and easy in everyday life. And I had to laugh because I knew when I read that comment, the next episode we were planning on recording was about the kerygma, which is a Greek word and kind of, you know, it's not a huge word, but it's not a word we use every day. So the hope is that with this episode, that the kerygma, the core gospel message, the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ can become accessible and easy too. that it's not something that's over anyone's head or out of reach for anyone. We can all learn to preach the kerygma. Hector Molina is our guest. He's a nationally known apologist, evangelist, Catholic speaker. He's all over the place. And what a gift it is that he lives right here in St. Louis and was able to join us for this episode of Go and Make. Hope you enjoy it. Welcome to Go and Make from the Archdiocese of St. Louis equipping you to live the great commission of Jesus Christ to go and make disciples of all nations. All right, welcome back to the Go and Make podcast. We are here today with Hector Molina, who is a Catholic evangelist and speaker and actually lives right here in St. Louis, Missouri. So welcome to the Go and Make podcast. We're really Thank excited you, to have you. Thank you. It's great to be here with you. You actually worked at the Archdiocese at one point, too. This is like a homecoming for you to be back in the building. It is. It was pretty yeah. nostalgic uh, driving up, and uh, it brought back some really fond memories of serving here as um, first director of Hispanic ministry, then later director of the Office for the New Evangelization. It was during the time of Archbishop Burke, and I have great memories of the wonderful people that... I had a chance to work with over the years, and so so yeah, it's a it's a wonderful homecoming. I think sometimes in St. Louis we forget how spoiled we are with all the great things and <laughs> apostolates and and people who are here, mm-hmm. and just like the roots of the faith are so deep in St. They Louis. Are. And as you you know, you travel around the country doing mm-hmm. different ministry, different work, and uh, it's different. It's a different environment out there in the rest of the world. But we have so many great things and and Catholic institutions and. Catholic schools, hospitals, universities, things like that. And uh, it's really helped shape our Catholic culture. But Mm. what we're going to talk about today a little bit is this idea of proclamation, the idea of the kerygma, the core gospel message. We'll get into that a little bit later of what exactly that is, but really the need to help those institutions and help our roots kind of rediscover just the core of the gospel message. So I'm Mm. I'm really excited to do that today. But I wanted to talk to you first, you know, something we try and ask each of our guests on the show is just to tell us a little bit about your own faith story, your own journey of, you know, maybe not the like the full hour long testimony <laughs> version of the, the keynote version. How many weeks do you, you have? Know, that's exactly right. We can break <laughs> this into 47 parts. No, but, uh, but give, you know, give us the, the five, 10 minute version of, of how you came to know and love Jesus in a way that inspired you to be where you are today. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I come from a a nominally Catholic background. When I say nominally, I'm talking about my really early years uh, growing up. I'm the oldest of four, and uh, at that time, my parents were were cultural Catholics. I mean, we were baptized, but that was the extent of it. They did not attend church. They did not really practice or really know their faith well. And as the oldest of four, I, I remember the turbulent moments in their early marriage uh, and was privy to a lot of the arguments and witnessed a lot of the divisiveness 
that was manifesting itself. So they were going through a very rough patch. And I remember, uh, to be honest, that it was a bit traumatic for me because when you hear your parents arguing that way, you feel great insecurity and, and terror because you don't want to see them fall apart and, uh, and this end up tragically in divorce or separation. So, so I still remember um, that period, and it was a, a difficult one. What I also remember is that there was a, a real shift in the dynamic and some real healing took place over time. And I recognized even as a child that one of the markers, one of the, the differentiating factors that kind of turned the tide was the fact that all of a sudden we started going to church, we started going to mass, which we had never done. They were taking us for catechism, for sacramental prep. You know, we did our first Holy Communion, my brother and I, uh, and my parents just really made a decision to turn to the Lord, and that that really healed their marriage. It saved their marriage. It drew us closer together, and and that stuck with me. Even to this day, I look back on you know the Lord's fingerprints on my life, and I see how through that experience of, of trauma uh, that he was able to heal their marriage and by extension draw us into a relationship with him. So from that moment forward, we became very, very devout. I was an altar server. Were you an altar server? I was, yes, yeah, absolutely. I mean, yes. Uh, so I served at the altar with my brother. We we practically lived in church. It was like our second you, home. You didn't grow up here in St. Louis, I didn't. Though, right? I'm from the Brooklyn Diocese. Okay. Don't hold that against me. That's, no, it's good. Don't ask me where I went to high school. It doesn't really matter since it wasn't here. <laughs> so, uh, so we served at the altar. My mother was a lector. Father was a Eucharistic, uh, uh, an usher. I mean, we were very, very invested in the life of the parish, and and we loved it. But then I contracted that disease. It's so common. It's called adolescence. That's right. Yeah. And I rebelled a bit. Kind Come, of out. comes with apathy and a little bit of angst <laughs> and all kinds of things like that. Right? You start to kind of push away from those institutions uh, and individuals that uh, that represent uh, you know authority in your life. You kind of want to. Um, render yourself a bit more independent. You want to flex yourself a little bit. And so I started doing that. So I kind of pushing away from my parents as well as from the church. And I outgrew being an altar server and, and even felt a bit disillusioned even about going to mass. And I remember announcing to my parents <laughs> unceremoniously one Sunday morning that I wasn't going to mass that day. It didn't go over well. Mm-hmm. Uh, my mother broke down in tears. She just couldn't understand. I said, I, I'm 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 a man now. I'm not a boy. That's altar boy, not altar man. You were what, like twelve years old? I was like, yeah, yeah, probably a real man, you know. (laughs) And uh, and furthermore, I didn't feel like I needed to go to church to show God that I believed in Him and that uh, I had faith. And so she took it hard. And I said, you know, Mom, I'm gonna just this one time. I'm gonna go to mass with you today, but please respect my decision. Um, I've thought long and hard about it, and so please, I need that space. And so I went one last time, got dressed, went with them, sat in the back of the church, they sat in the front, and uh, kind of folded my arms and said, okay, Father, you know, hurry up with the homily, let's get this done. And by the end of it, was just thrilled, because this was it, I was emancipated, I was going to be free. Little did I know that Father, uh, as is our Catholic custom, uh, then invites us to sit down for (laughs) interminable announcements, and then invites this person to come up and give an announcement. That's always deadly, because you know it's going to take, 
even more time. Anytime they ask you to sit down, it's not good. Yeah, right? you know, you're, you're you know in you're trouble. in for a little while. Exactly. <laughs> so he invites this person to get up, and I, I didn't recognize who it was. It was a young person, beautiful young girl, and uh, and certainly I took notice. And I watched her walk up to the lectern and make her announcement. She announced that she was part of a youth movement in the diocese, neighboring parish, and they came to our parish to start a youth group. So she wanted to invite all the young people to come out after Mass to meet in the annex of the church to have this meeting. And I got to tell you, Brian, I, I felt a moral obligation to go to that meeting. That's right, yeah. <laughs> Spirit was calling you. Absolutely. Moving. So I went up to my mother uh, at the end of Mass and said, Mom, you know, don't wait up for me for lunch. And I'm going to be at that meeting. And so you could kind of see her light up like, yes, Lord, thank you. Went to that meeting, and it was really interesting because I encountered young people unlike any that I had ever really come into contact with. They were different from the teenagers that I went to school with. Uh, they were a bit peculiar, not in a negative sense, but they just were filled with joy, with peace. There was real serenity. Yeah, not things you see in, you know, high schoolers, adolescents, people who are kind of wrestling with their own identity. Exactly. There's not always that comfort with who they are. Yeah, and there really was. There was a real serenity there and a real joy, and, and I was hooked. So next Sunday, where was I? I was at Mass, sitting in the front row, and after Mass, we would meet in the annex of the church. We did that for weeks, for months. They were evangelizing us. They were discipling us. And then finally, it popped the question uh, to the young men who were there at the group, those among us who were from the parish, and said, who would be interested in going on a retreat? So I'm looking at the beautiful countenance of this young lady who gave that announcement, and uh, I just jumped to my feet and I said, I will go, send me, you know, <laughs> I volunteer. So uh, I left that meeting really having no idea what I had just signed up for, having no concept of what a retreat was. They said, you know, we'll, we'll fill in the blanks, we'll meet with your parents. So I walked home and I... I suddenly was possessed with a bit of dread, saying to myself, oh boy. What did I just get myself I, into? What did I just step yeah. into? Because I'm envisioning like this, okay, this is a Catholic retreat, three days. By the end of it, right, after they've, they've peppered us with, with the gospel and with, you know, stuff about Jesus, they're going to administer like a Catholic SAT. Like at the end of it, we're going to have to take our number two pencils and kind of drill down and show that we know our faith, and I didn't want to come back, tail between my legs, you know, uh, really failing. Embarrassed. Embarrassed. Right? Yeah. So I said, okay. I went home, asked my mother, do we have a Bible? She says, yes, of course. She pulls out this 50-pound family Bible, drops it in my lap. I start devouring the Gospels. I went over my confirmation notes because there was, there was no catechism at the time, just to prepare myself for this retreat. Well, to my great surprise, I get there. And there was no SAT, Catholic SAT. There was no exam. There were young people who were there who were, to your point before about the charisma, who were just passionately in love with Jesus and had been so impacted and changed by that encounter with Jesus that they were filled with a zeal for souls and with an enthusiasm that was infectious. And they proclaimed Christ and his gospel, the charisma, the good news of salvation, in such a compelling way that I, I absolutely was arrested, not only with intention, but with conviction, that that was a message that was going to change my life, and it did. It was on that weekend retreat 
that I came to Christ, so to speak, that I moved from being a cultural Catholic, a nominal Catholic, to really embracing the faith for myself. And it was a game changer. And so that really was, for me, the pivotal moment, uh, an awakening of faith that, you know, has led me to where I am today, where I'm, you know, full-time evangelist and preacher of the gospel, and have spent well over 30 years now in the vineyard of the Lord, just doing exactly what they did for me, trying to do that for others. Yeah, and when you receive the gift, you can't help but want to give it away to someone oh, else, Oh, no, too, absolutely. Right? Yeah, yeah that's beautiful. why they call it good news. Yeah, here in the Archdiocese, you know, we're talking about trying to build out a pathway of discipleship. We talk about, you know, we have Sherry Waddell's thresholds of conversion mm-hmm. um, before someone meets Jesus, and then really that encounter moment, right? Then encountering Jesus, growing in relationship with Him, and witnessing Him to others. And, you know, those retreats are really pivotal moments for people because, you know, we, we hear the gospel message a lot, I think, in really simple ways, and it's proclaimed that it's, it's written into the liturgy, it's written into, you know, there, there's some charismatic preaching, uh, the gospel preaching that goes on in our parishes. But there's something really important about being able to step away, to, to pull back from daily life, and then when that message is really fervently proclaimed or it's personalized and you just hear it all of a sudden in a different way. And I, just, I, love, I love retreats for that. Uh, they've been a big part of my life, too. And, mm-hmm. and, you know, we have a lot of acts retreats here in St. Louis or other things. You know, Curcio mm-hmm. uh, down south happens a lot, too. A lot of beautiful moments. So, I mean, is, is there any, like, what do you think it was about that moment that you heard it that, that you'd probably heard that gospel somewhat before? Mm-hmm. What was different about it? It's an interesting question because, yeah, it, truth be told, having spent years, obviously, as an altar server, as a worshiper, as a Catholic, going to Mass regularly with my parents, clearly you have an opportunity to hear the good news, the gospel proclaimed. But I think in a retreat setting, there's such a a charismatic focus. They're, they're laying out for you. And you mentioned Cursillo, and the retreat I went on is akin to a Cursillo retreat, which is... Spanish for a basic course or a short course on the faith. And so they systematically kind of lay out the various elements of the gospel, the kerygma. And that's something that unfortunately is is missing, uh, truth be told, in a lot of uh, homiletics and a lot of liturgical preaching. Uh, that's something that I think we need to, to recover is, is that understanding that the homily is a ripe opportunity to always include the proclamation of the kerygma, the good news. Yes, you need to exegete you know, the biblical text, the liturgical text, the readings. That's important. However, it really should be centered on proclaiming this fundamental charismatic message, uh, which is the core of the gospel. So for me, over the course of that weekend, it was like all of the, the pieces that I had heard over the years were systematically presented in a way that made sense. Like the light bulb went off and I said, okay, I get it now. I understand how this all fits together in this overarching narrative. And I think that there are a lot of Catholics who sadly have the same experience of maybe being a bit disenchanted and saying, you know, I never really heard the gospel when I was a Catholic, but it's only when I went to the Baptist church or this church, when I heard, truly heard, the gospel proclaimed. And and that is, to a certain extent, a legitimate criticism because a lot of the other faith traditions, Christian faith traditions, uh, they put a real premium on making sure that they, in their preaching, are inviting people to hear the message of Christ and to respond to that message. Now, we in our preaching, 
liturgically speaking, we don't approach liturgical preaching that way. However, I think we have a lot to learn yeah, from for sure. that kind of approach to preaching that leads people to faith. We just kind of presume, okay, we're preaching to people who already have faith. Yeah, I think if we go back to those Sherry Waddell thresholds from forming intentional disciples, I think that we assume that people who come to Mass are disciples of yes. Jesus, authentic, intentional disciples of Jesus. And actually, you know, my working theory is that most of them are in an openness phase. So, you yeah. know, initial trust, maybe some spiritual curiosity, but openness is they're coming because they're willing to hear something mm-hmm. that might feed them or challenge them, but they're not exactly sure what they believe or what it means to their life. Like mm-hmm. they know they know there's good in the church. They know there's there's good in trying to live the moral tenets of the church. Even they see it in society, they see that challenge in their lives, but they don't know exactly, haven't, haven't made it a personal faith. So when they go down the street to the Protestant church, the mega church or whatever it is, you know, and, and they hear a really strongly preached, well preached, convicting message, they say, Well, why has no one ever told me this? Because mm-hmm. we're not because we assume that we're trying to catechize someone, we're trying to teach them the faith in a deeper way, but really what we're trying to do is give them the faith, mm-hmm. maybe maybe for the first time to make a personal decision. So we should probably pause. We've used the word probably too much already, <laughs> but the word kerygma, it's really a fancy church word, you know, uh, and, and sometimes we can get in the habit of using those too much. So can you just maybe tell me what is kerygma? What does it mean? Why do we use that word even? Yeah. Yeah, it, or it, should it, we use that word? Maybe not. No, it's a legitimate word. It's yeah, a word right. that obviously... It's a Greek we, word, Exactly. Right? Yeah. It's a Greek word. Kerygma or kerygma means proclamation. Uh, it refers to the, the core proclamation of the good news, really the heart of the gospel. And you can survey the New Testament. It appears in the Gospels and certainly in the writings of St. Paul and the Acts of the Apostles. You have examples of the likes of, of Peter and Paul preaching certain sermons that include the kerygma, which is the heart of the message of the gospel. And it's, it's an important term because it really reminds us that, that yes, I mean, the message of Christ is, is a powerful message, but there are a lot of facets to it. It's not just simply God loves you. Yes, that's true, but that's not really the sum total. It doesn't really uh, bring into account all the various elements of that. And if you just go up to somebody and say, well, God loves you, it really isn't going to do it for most people because Mm -hmm. what does that mean? How do I come to understand that? And so in evangelization, it's important to understand, well, what is the kerygma? What is the core message of the gospel? What are those essential elements that are present in what we call the good news? Because even saying good news, okay, what does that mean? Like, let's dig beyond the, the the surface of it. Yeah, Schnooks has some good news. Coca-Cola's on yeah, sale. Like, I that, I mean, that's good news, too. <laughs> it's a little different, but right. Mm-hmm. So unpacking that, I, I think, is very, very critical. Uh, doing that in our preaching, speaking of priests and deacons, and those of us engaged in that kind of ministry, but even more so, just on an everyday basis, just for the average Catholic to become familiar with the elements of the kerygma so that they're aware as to what they're called to proclaim, and then also how to engage others and how to, to furnish them with this good news. That's something that I think we, we certainly can grow as a church, in our respective parishes, in our families, to teach our children the ABCs of the good news of Jesus Christ. And so 
You know, one of the, uh, you know, coming out of the synod on the new evangelization, they released the joy of the gospel. Mm-hmm. And, and again, this re-articulating what we've been teaching in the church and really emphasizing since the Second Vatican Council. And in there, Pope Francis talks about the first proclamation. He yeah. says this, this kerygma is the first proclamation. And he says it's not first because it's chronologically first. He goes, it needs to be that too. But it's also first because it's the, the priority and the heart of absolutely everything we do. And I think mm-hmm. as we talk about evangelization, one of the rules I always try to remind people is assume nothing. Just assume nothing of anyone, right? Uh, again, share what else is never accept a label in place of a story. Like these simple assumptions about where someone is in their spiritual journey or what's going on in their faith lives. So don't assume anything of, of, of anyone. And again, including myself, I have to wake up in the mirror, uh, wake up every morning and look in the mirror and say like today, you know, make my morning offering. Today, Lord, I give you my life. And I don't assume that just because yesterday I lived as a good Catholic that today I can too. Mm-hmm. So when you're working with someone in evangelization, not to assume that they've heard the gospel preach in a convicting way. And mm-hmm. we know so many of our Catholics who have walked away they say that. I've never heard it preached in a real convincing way, in a way that meant anything to me. So uh, in The Joy of the Gospel, Pope Francis talks about that uh, we have to have this message and we have to hear it again and again. It has to be proclaimed at every level of our ministry and everything. Every program we have has to have that core gospel proclamation built into it. So whether it's baptism prep, or which should be pretty easy to preach the gospel, is the whole point of baptism to become part of God's family, mm-hmm. right? Or marriage prep, or RCIA, of course, is going to do it. But how do we also do it in our Catholic schools? Or how can your, your CYC sports program become charismatic, right? Mm-hmm. What a wild idea. <laughs> but at every level, we have to assume nothing and preach the gospel in a really fervent way. Yeah, absolutely. And, and to, I mean, to your point... The, the power that kerygma has, I mean, you go back to the Gospels, you go back to, you know, the Acts of the Apostles, and you see just the, the, the unleashing of the power of the Gospel, of the kerygma, that with one sermon, Simon Peter was able to draw to Christ 3,000 souls who were baptized that day with one sermon— I mean, that shows you the potency. I gotta learn to preach like that. Yeah. <laughs> no, now we preach three thousand sermons, and we're like, if we convert one, but <laughs> but he filled with the Holy Spirit. You know, we're told in the Acts of the Apostles, chapter one, verse eight, Jesus before parting, before leaving, before ascending to heaven, he says, "But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses." And that word for power is dunamis, again, another Greek word. It's where we get the word dynamite or dynamism from. So we're talking about a supernatural power, an explosive power that is given to us by virtue of our baptism. We receive the Holy Spirit, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. At confirmation, we're sealed with the Holy Spirit. We're anointed and appointed to bear fruit, to proclaim good news, to be heralds of the gospel. And there's power in that. And so when you look at the example of, of Peter and Paul and the soul winning that took place in the apostolic age. And again, for 20 centuries now, you know, we have been winning souls for the kingdom. And that kernel of the gospel, that's the heart of it. You know, we don't need a PhD in theology uh, in order to wrap our heads around it, in order to be fully furnished to proclaim it. No, this is a message that every human being has the potential to proclaim, but we first have to encounter it. I mean, we can't be witnesses to a reality we are unfamiliar with. You know, we know, going back to my own conversion story, you know, I went into that retreat 
priding myself on knowing a great many things about Jesus, but I had yet to know Jesus. And when I went on that retreat, <laughs> I learned firsthand that these young people had something I didn't. Not only did they have head knowledge of who Jesus was, but they knew him. And the charisma is meant not just to communicate certain truths, <laughs> to fill your mind with information, but no, it's about proclaiming the person of Jesus Christ. And I love what the catechism states. If you go to the glossary section of the catechism and you look up the term evangelization, it has a beautiful three-part definition that I use wherever I go to teach evangelization. And the first part is, for me, very compelling, because it says that evangelization is the proclamation of Christ and his gospel by word and testimony of life in fulfillment of Christ's command. So that first part, the proclamation of Christ, and I love that because it's not just a proclamation of good news. We're not just sharing a message. It's not just what he did. Exactly. Not just miracles. Exactly. Not just even a suffering death. Or a it's set of truths person. or principles, yeah. but we're introducing people to the person of Jesus Christ. That, for me, it, it sets the tone for what evangelization really is about. It's not just communicating information, but it's leading people to encounter the person of Christ. That's a game changer. And his gospel, not my gospel, then the gospel according to Brian or to Hector or to this person or that person, but it's introducing people to him. That's the end game here, is to lead people to the encounter with Christ who calls each of us to be his disciple. And the charisma, <laughs> understanding the power of the charisma, experiencing it for yourself and understanding the power that that has and unleashing the grace of God in your own life, once you get that, as you said before, you just can't help yourself. It's irresistible. You have just this desire, this hunger for souls, and you understand that this message is life-changing, and you want to spend your energies wanting to share that message and lead people to Christ as others led you to Christ. So it, it's, it's an absolutely game-changing message if we can come to apprehend it and allow it to transform our lives. Yeah, I mean, without Jesus, I'm a mess, right? Uh, and I have nothing. And and oftentimes with Jesus, I'm a mess too. Still, right? Just ask my wife. No fault no. of Jesus. Yeah, right. Exactly. But but it's, it's it's recognizing that everything I have is a gift. Everything I have is a gift, and I can't. And I see other people who obviously and clearly sometimes in their lives need that gift too. And you know. Woe to me if I don't preach the gospel because yeah. they you, you can see this need and you see you look around the world, it is crying out for yeah. Jesus. The world is broken, it's hurt. I mean, there's so many you could you could name all the, the things in the world of, of what's going on where people are seeking attention and seeking love in all the wrong places. And what they need is the message of the gospel, mm -hmm. but but we're afraid to speak it sometimes yes, too. We you are. know, I mean Saint uh, Pope Paul the Sixth, Saint Pope Paul the Sixth in Evangelii Nuntiandi. Uh, again, like in that first generation after the Second Vatican Council, where we really are trying to recapture and reclaim the idea of evangelization, right? Of 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 bringing the gospel to the world because they saw that the world was shifting, that the world was changing. Mm -hmm. And he says there is no true evangelization if the name, teaching, life, promises of Jesus are not proclaimed. That's right. The explicit proclamation. Proclamation. And and again, I and I think I'm. This is like one of those things I probably say every week on the go and make <laughs> podcast. But we just we just think people learn just by being around by osmosis. Just yeah. they're going to assume our Catholic culture, and what we find is that, that just doesn't work anymore. And we have to get better at 
formulating the message into everything we do. So maybe it would be good uh, for us now if you could give us maybe some examples of like a formula of, mm-hmm. of how we might actually do this in our day-to-day lives or what does the kerygma look like? Absolutely. Before I do that, let me just double click on what you just said there because I think it's really critical. I think for Catholics, it's a bit of a struggle to wrap our heads around it because we see it in very binary terms. You know, there's a false dichotomy, a dualism. You know, it's, it's kind of an either-or you know, and there are those who place emphasis on, you know, I, I just live the gospel. You know, I, I try to be a good person, and I try to lead by Let example. My actions do the talking. Exactly. Yeah. And you they know. should. And, and absolutely, there's a place for that. And as you quoted, you know, Pope Paul VI in that document just beautifully lays it out and says, listen, the first proclamation, it begins with the silent witness of an, of an authentically Christian life. It's you living the gospel, okay? Put the deed in your creed. We all have to do that. And that silent witness that comes first. We need to lead by example. However, it's not an either or, but it's a both and. He says in that document that it, in the end, it's not enough. <laughs> he calls it on. He says, it is not it is, enough. Exactly. That silent proclamation needs to, at some point, it has to give way to that explicit proclamation using words. So I like to put it this way. It's, it's not merely show, but it's show and tell. You can't have really one without the other. They have to complement each other. Because if you really are living the gospel, inevitably it's going to lead people to ask questions about you. This is what he writes also in Evangelium Tiandi. It's going to provoke in them a desire, a curiosity. You know, why do you live the way you live, Hector? Why, why do you act the way you act? Why are you so full of joy? Maybe when circumstances are not that rosy, but yet you have this disposition. You know, how do you handle these things in such a unique and different way? Well, obviously, it gives me an opportunity to speak about Jesus, to speak about Christ, that he is the difference in my life, my faith. So we need to see it and understand it as a both and, show and tell. And we don't do so well on the telling component of it. And, and I get that. We feel inhibited. We feel like we don't, we're not prepared. We don't have the words, the sophistication. Once again, you don't need a degree in theology to be able to do this. Yeah, insert insert rant here, right? St. Francis of Assisi never said, <laughs> preach the gospel always, and if necessary, use words. And if he did say it, he was an itinerant preacher that traveled the countryside, preaching everywhere he went, yeah. preaching to animals. And and this is like, I mean, he just couldn't help but preach Jesus. So it, it's a great sentiment. We yeah. need to live the witness, and it's a scandal if we don't. And actually, that yeah. scandal really hurts us when we go to evangelize, because when we do proclaim the message, and then people don't see it lived in the church, in our leadership, yeah. in our average Catholics too, mm-hmm. it's a scandal, and it wounds our efforts at evangelization. Absolutely. So please, please, please live it, the witness. Serve the poor. Mm-hmm. Love your neighbor. All these things. Yeah. But don't do it without also speaking the name of Jesus to them. Listen, it, it is a fundamental spiritual... It's a biblical principle. St. Paul in, in Romans 10, 17... He says in the Latin is fides ex auxitu. Faith comes by hearing, and what is heard is the preaching of Christ. Faith is aroused. (laughs) It is awakened. It is enlivened. It is vivified by what? By hearing. And what is heard is the preaching of Christ. And so when, when you read that and you think about just the importance of proclamation, if faith comes by hearing, well, how are people going to hear (laughs) unless they have a preacher? It's same same text, Romans 10. How are they going to hear unless they hear they presented with a preacher? Okay, and, and how is the preacher going to be able to proclaim unless he is sent? So faith comes by hearing, and so understanding that you and I, we each have a responsibility to 
to be ambassadors of Jesus, to proclaim the good news. And we all do it in different ways. But to your point, in terms of kind of a formula, I found this, and I know you have the experience as well as director of evangelization, that when you teach Catholics kind of the, the fundamentals of evangelization, breaking things down is, is critical. It's important to lead people through that systematic presentation. So this is the way that I do it. And there are others that have different formulas for me. I, I break it down to, to seven elements or seven steps of the kerygma. And obviously, we could spend an entire episode on each of these uh, very easily, but let me just distill it for you very simply here. The good news always begins with the good news. <laughs> Never begin with the bad news. But when you can, if you're systematically presenting kind of an overview of the gospel, you want to begin with the good news. And that good news is that God loves them. God loves you. He created you out of love. He created you in love and for love. That God created us for communion with him, ultimately. That's what we were created for. We're created for a purpose. And Brian, you and I know that we live in a world that is devoid of what? Of real meaning. <laughs> we lack significance because we lack a sense of purpose. You know, we've got this God-shaped hole in our hearts, and we're trying to fill it with all these things, thinking they'll make us happy. But no, we were made by God and for God, and our hearts remain restless until they rest in him. So we're created by a loving God. <laughs> who has a plan for our lives. In the Catechism of the Catholic Church, paragraph number one, it's a beautiful paragraph. It says, God, infinitely perfect and blessed in himself, in a plan of sheer goodness, freely made man to make him share in his own blessed life. We're not the result of, of, of chance or happenstance or accidents. No, we were created on purpose and for purpose. So God loves us. He created us out of love, wills for us, to be in communion with him. But there's something that severed, that wounded that relationship, and that's the reality of sin. That's kind of part two. God is love. God loves you. Number two is sin will destroy you. Sin ruptures that communion. It destroys that plan of God. It, 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 it deviates us from God's will. And we look at that unfolding in the garden, which is a portrait of really what happens to us in our everyday lives is that we're, we're tempted to deviate from that plan. We're tempted to rebel against God, who is all love, who is all mercy. When we do that, we get into trouble. And Lord knows, you look around us, and the world is a mess. Why is it a mess? Because we're not living in God's will and according to his plan. When you deviate from that plan, there are consequences. So God loves you. Sin will destroy you, ultimately. It destroys your relationship with God, with yourself, and with those around you. The next step is what? Well, you got good news, bad news, but then there's more good news because Christ, he died to save you, to redeem you. He died to, to deliver us from the powers of sin that leads to death. And so through his atoning sacrifice on the cross, God humbled himself. He condescended, became a man, and took upon himself our sins in order to redeem us, to ransom us, and to rescue us from the sin that leads to to ultimate damnation and to death. But that's not the end of the story. <laughs> because God loves you, sin will destroy you. Christ died to save you. We must respond to that action of God. How do we do that? Well, by repenting. Repent and believe. These were the words that our Savior proclaimed as he began his ministry. Repent and believe in the gospel. And so as a result of that, we're called to what? To take stock of our own sinfulness, 
to repent of that, to turn away from sin in order to believe in the gospel, to have faith. Again, it doesn't end there with, you know, name it and claim it, blab it and grab it. It's not enough just to believe, but we have to live according to that belief. So God loves you, sin will destroy you, Christ died to save you, repent and believe. And for those who have not been baptized, it's an invitation to be baptized and to receive the Holy Spirit. Because unless we're born anew from above, through baptism, and for those who may already be baptized and are hearing this message perhaps for the first time, it's an invitation for them to renew their baptism. It's an invitation for them to say, come Holy Spirit, <laughs> and, and renew your wonders in me and my life. Because we can't live the Christian life unless we walk in the Spirit. And that's a component of you know this whole economy of the charisma that, that many preachers leave out. It's just, you know, name it and claim it, just say the sinner's prayer, repent, and you're all good. No, it doesn't end there. You need to repent and believe. You need to renew that covenant with the Holy Spirit, either through baptism, if you've not been baptized, if you have been, to ask the Holy Spirit to once again tabernacle with you and give the Holy Spirit permission to reign in your life. That renewal in the Holy Spirit will lead to another step. So you've got God loves you, sin will destroy you, Christ died to save you, repent and believe, okay? You've got to obviously surrender to the Holy Spirit through baptism or through renewal. From there, you have to continue in that walk. It doesn't end there. And so I like to add, abide in Christ and in his church. Yeah, because they give us all the tools of how we can do that while in the church. We've got everything we need. Exactly. We can't do this on our own. We need to remain in communion with Christ Jesus says, abide in me. I'm the vine, you are the branches. Apart from me, you can do nothing. So how can we bear forth fruit or perform good works and live according to the Spirit unless we abide in Christ and in his sacramental church, particularly through the sacraments of reconciliation and the Holy Eucharist? We continue to nurture ourselves through the sap of the Holy Spirit that courses through the vine, who is Christ. He says, apart from me, you can do nothing. And yet we try. <laughs> we try, all we try Way all more the time. Than I should. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. We fail in that regard, but we have to abide in Christ and in his church. And then finally, that seventh element or step in the charisma is to, to bear much fruit, to live out that mission, to go and make disciples, to be fruitful and to multiply. That is to, to proclaim the good news with, with our deeds as well as our words. And those are seven, I believe, essential elements or components that factor into this thing that we call the charisma that anyone can proclaim, that anyone can share with others. Yeah, I think that last step is really important. Again, Paul VI, Evangelii Nuntiani, which written, you know, 1975, right? So we've been talking about this and reminding people of this for a while. Mm -hmm. It's unthinkable that you should accept the word without bearing witness to it. Yeah. And so if you're not evangelizing, it's actually because you're not fully evangelized yourself. And again, when you say that, people can be offended, right? Like, oh, are you calling me a bad Catholic? And uh, in some ways, the answer is yes. Like, if you're not evangelizing, you are a bad Catholic. Now, it doesn't mean, you know, you're condemned forever for not... Like, but, but, but the Lord wants more of you. He mm-hmm. expects more of you. And that to understand what the gospel is, is that it's a sacrifice that has to bear fruit. Yeah. It has to. 
And, and if it's not bearing fruit in your life, then you need to stay plugged in to keep receiving the graces and ask the Lord, help me to bear fruit, because it's his fruit we're bearing. It's not our own work. Mm-hmm. He gives us the grace to do it, and we have to go out and live in the church, living those graces to go forth to the world to be that witness. I mean, the Catechism of the Catholic Church is very clear in 1816, paragraph 1816. It, it states something that w- when I've quoted it at parish seminars or at missions, people just kind of bristle and they say, well, wait a minute, there's no way the Catechism says that. It says that service of and witness to the faith are necessary for salvation, i.e., evangelization is necessary for salvation. Yeah, that's bold. <laughs> that is bold. Strong, yeah. That is bold. And and the catechism doesn't mince words because Jesus ultimately is calling us, commissioning us to go and make disciples. That's not the bishop's job alone or the priest's job alone, but but every disciple, every follower of Jesus is duty bound, has a sacred duty to through their lived example and their words to give testimony, to witness to this good news and to lead others to Christ. And when I've shared that, it's like you can hear a pin drop. What? It's a gut check. What do you yeah. mean necessary? Yes, because you look at St. Paul in 1 Corinthians 9, 16, he says, you know, necessity is laid upon me. <laughs> Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. So this is not something that we can pick and choose and say, well, you know what, Brian, you have just a gift and, and you're more... Uh, inclined to, you're more adept to being a communicator of the good news. So that's for you. You're an evangelizer, but I'm not, you know, because I'm introverted or I'm this or I'm that. I'm soft-spoken. I'm not an intellectual. We come up with all sorts of excuses, but at the end of the day, each and every one of us is going to be held to account for our stewardship of this treasure that we have in earthen vessels. We're not perfect by any stretch of the imagination, but this good news This good news cannot be contained. It cannot be restrained. We're duty-bound to share that treasure. And if we fail to do so, if we're derelict in our duty, woe to us, because in the end, he's going to hold us accountable and judge us according to what we've done and what we failed to do. And that sin of omission, I don't know about you, Brian, I'm sure it does, it haunts me because when you think about the opportunities that you and I, over the course of our lifetime, that we've squandered, when we could have said something, when we could have given witness, when we could have reached out in faith and in boldness, and yet we shrunk in fear or intimidation, or we didn't want to be embarrassed, or we didn't want to impose, or you name it, we come up with all sorts of excuses, but ultimately everyone is duty-bound to be an ambassador for Jesus Christ. And there's, Yeah, there's going to be those moments where you fail where you fail to speak or you speak poorly or whatever it is. So we're all, we're all going to be bad Catholics, but but thank God, literally, for the sacraments, for the mm-hmm. sacrament of confession to help us through that. And I think one of the things that we need to, to really think about is if we want to get better at it, we want to, you know, not swing and miss, sometimes you need a hitting coach, you know? So you need, you need to study the game. You need to figure out what's going on. So if you want to get better at proclaiming the gospel, you have to practice proclaiming the gospel. And you have to be around people we're going to ask you how it's going. And I think one of the things that we really need to do, if we want to be evangelizers, we have to surround ourselves with evangelizers. And we have to look at each other and say, hey, when this week did you proclaim the gospel to someone? You know, sometimes we go to we go to parish meetings, we're leading evangelization committees or training people and and, and different workshops and seminars, and we'll say, okay, your homework this week 
is to go preach the gospel to someone. Go find a chance to give your own testimony and preach the gospel. And a lot of time, and we'll come back the next the next month or next week and say, "How did it go?" Mm-hmm. And people say, oh, "I didn't, I didn't do it. I failed." You know, and it's like, oh, "Okay, we'll try again." But we're so, I think we're we're we have it so built up in our heads that this is so intimidating. Mm-hmm. But when you start to do it, you realize it's not that bad. No, it's not that scary. People aren't going to bite your head off. You know, I'm not. I'm not all in always on door-to-door evangelization. A lot of times when people want to start a program at a parish, we want to evangelize, we want to go door-to-door. Okay, well, there's some other things we can do too. It's it's not a bad thing. But I think one of the biggest fruits of going door-to-door is you go and you knock on someone's door and you share with them the gospel or you invite them to church and you come out alive on the other side. And when you do that, (laughs) it trains you that if I can do that with someone I don't know, and don't, you know, we care about everyone, but I don't, I don't have this personal affection or affinity for. Mm-hmm. If I can do it for them, I can do it for the people I, I want to lay down my life for. Yeah. And when you get in the habit and 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 doing it with people you, that it's a, like a safe environment, like where you can feel trusted and loved and known, you can start to do it in every environment. So mm-hmm. surround yourself with people who are going to ask you how it's going mm-hmm. and then ask your friends, your disciples, your disciple makers along the way, how, how's it going? Are you sharing the gospel? What What's working well for you? Or, or when you see, you know, I'm trying to share the gospel with this person, but they they ran me out. So what could I have done differently? Like, mm-hmm. to like kind of process these things, review the game film, if you will, to keep our sports analogies going, <laughs> uh, of just trying to get better at it. Because if we yeah. don't practice, it's not going to happen. Yeah. And I think another component of it, aside from obviously familiarizing yourself with the components of the kerygma. And again, this isn't rocket science. You don't need a PhD in theology. Anybody can do this. But it's also learning to develop an ear, to be able to listen. Because you can learn, again, the techniques in terms of, of understanding how to break things down and, and speak in a simple, straightforward way that, that communicates these truths. But when are you going to do that? One of those moments, those ripe moments, those grace-filled moments where you could interject in a conversation and maybe ask a question or make a point that can lead you in a direction where you can actually share the good news. Yeah, that's and, a huge point because I think we we oftentimes we want to hit people over the head with truth or sometimes when they get really excited about evangelization for the first time, they're just literally just bludgeoning people with the gospel almost. And and you have to ask a lot of questions about of people and with people and walk with people before you have the right to even yeah. say that almost. And then it, you, you look at the age in which we live. I mean, this is such an ape, a ripe age for evangelization, for soul winning, because the world is falling apart. It's a mess. And what are people talking about? They're talking about the, the disasters that are unfolding. I mean, here in our own country, in our own land, you know, people are talking about the economy. They're talking about, obviously, uh, the social unrest and, and the politics. And, you know, this is what is burning on people's minds is, is the fact that our society is becoming unraveled. You look at the wars that are unfolding and taking place. I mean, we're like on the brink of, of World War III. This is really prevalent in people's minds. And so they're chomping at the bit to kind of commiserate and to say, can you believe what's going on? This is a ripe opportunity. Yeah, yeah. If only we had some hope. We have the hope. We have the hope. I mean, this is, listen, a ripe opportunity to be able to present in in a non-threatening and non-churchy way, just to talk about the big picture, just to talk about the reality of of spiritual warfare and the fact that, yes, that there are, are, are powers and principalities afoot that are seeking 
to sow seeds of dissension and, and, and to destroy us. But we do have hope in Christ that as bleak as things seem, as a Christian, I have hope. Nothing can take that hope away from me. I mean, no election is going to decide ultimately my eternal fate. No resolution of conflict in a third world country is, you know, these things, they're important, but ultimately for me, the very ground of my existence is God. It's my relationship with Christ. And for those that are struggling because of dis-ease, because of anxiety brought about because of the things of the world, we have a ripe opportunity to speak to that anxiety, to speak to that dis-ease, to speak to that unrest, that lack of peace, because we have the message of salvation. We have the message of deliverance. We have the message that will lead people to the true Prince of Peace. And why we're not seizing, again, speaking generally, those opportunities when we're chatting up our neighbors who are saying, yeah, I just, this economy is just, it's, it's, it's just disastrous what's going on and I just don't know. And, you know, what's happening, you know, in the world and, and all these problems. And there are people who are obsessed with the news and all they're hearing is bad news. They become addicted to that. And so talk about a culture that is ripe for <laughs> the good news of Jesus Christ and an invitation to faith, but yet we need to be equipped as Christians to be able to do that, not keep that, that message to ourselves. You know, as the Catechism says that, you know, we are, are called, the disciple of Christ is called not to keep the faith only and live on it, but to proclaim it, to confidently bear witness to it, and to spread it. That's paragraph 1816 of the Catechism. I just love hanging out with people that can quote uh, random church documents <laughs> in the Catechism and Scripture even more than I do. It's so great. I love it. Uh, birds of a feather. That's yeah, right. I mean, yeah. We, we have this treasure. And when we're sitting on Fort Knox, and yet we behave like paupers, we've got so much to give, but yet we, we don't recognize all that we have been offered, all that we've been furnished, and if we got a clue, if we understood this, you see this in your ministry, Brian, I know, and I, I've had that experience as well and continue to, that when you proclaim the good news of salvation to a soul that is ripe and properly disposed, a miracle of grace happens. And when that person is set on fire, oh my goodness, they come alive. And you can equip them and then point them in a direction and say, go, <laughs> don't wait, go and make disciples. That person is unleashed, and there's no turning back. And how many times have you given a talk or, or said something, and you're, you're preaching the gospel in some way, and you say some little thing, and then weeks or months or sometimes even years later, someone reaches out and said, that one thing you said really changed my life. And you're like, wait, that, that thing? So, I mean, we just, when you put it in the Lord's hands and you just speak His message, things happen. In yeah. people's lives. So we have to assume that receptivity in people, and and you don't know what's going on in, inside of people's lives, like you were saying. There's so much um, searching going on, and I think we look at people sometimes in our parishes or our neighborhoods or whatever, and we say, well, they don't, they're not ready for it yet. You know, and again, it's more art than science, but, but we don't want to assume what's going on underneath the surface of people's lives. So to, to get in there and to know them, to love them, to ask the questions, and that's why, again, Pope Francis reminds us that it has to be represented at every level of our ministry and everything we do. So again, this is such a great uh, conversation. I think we could probably go on uh, for days, but um, you know, we want to make sure we, uh, we move along here a little bit. So if, again, let's just do like, if you had like three practical tips for people in their day-to-day -day life, 
uh, to maybe better understand the kerygma and get better at preaching the core gospel message, what would you tell them to do? Well, I think first and foremost, we need to be people of prayer. We need to, at all times on a daily basis, we need to be in communion with the Holy Spirit and on a daily basis pray to the Holy Spirit to lead and guide us in our daily walk to, in a sense, what I do is I, I basically hand over my schedule to the Holy Spirit and say, you know, I've got these appointments, Lord, but you're the Lord of my life. And so if you want to schedule some divine appointments uh, in order to witness, please do so. Interrupt me. You know, I, I give you free reign. Lead me to someone that I can witness to and speak and it's a just dangerous love. Prayer, he does it's it. a dangerous prayer. He does Absolutely. It, yeah. And you begin doing that. You begin to daily giving the Holy Spirit a blank check and saying, Lord, I'm yours. <laughs> I want to be a witness. I want to bless someone today, okay? I want to lead someone to the Lord. Uh, he will move. He will work. In doing that, cultivating that, that surrender, that trust, and then obeying those prompts because he'll tap you on the shoulder and say, yeah, you know what? That's the one I want you to, to listen to and, and to love on and to, to witness to. He does that on a daily basis. Um, so prayer is fundamental. I mean, unless, yeah. unless we are people of prayer, unless we are in communion with the Lord, and particularly with the Holy Spirit, unless we're docile, that comes through prayer, through that communion, then we can't possibly uh, witness effectively. So I think everything begins with prayer and, and a sacramental life. Then for me, I would certainly encourage um, everyone to immerse themselves in the Word of God in the sacred scriptures, because for me, what has been so life-giving for me is, is saturating myself in scripture, soaking up the scriptures and understanding, especially when it applies to the kerygma, those seven steps, you know, you can look for those verses. Yeah, know where they are. Know where yeah. they are. You can quote them very simply. And they're reformulated many different times in many different ways. Exactly. Yeah. And so there's just, you have a treasure trove of, of, of verses at your disposal that you can memorize and just allow those things to marinate in your souls. And unless you study the scriptures, you know, the, the, the catechism states that we are, the church forcefully exhorts the faithful to, to study the sacred scriptures, okay? It, it is a lamp unto our feet, a light unto our path. And so I don't think we do enough of that. I think we're certainly doing much better. There's so many, there's a plethora of resources out there at your fingertips, at your disposal, to help you to become more biblically grounded, more biblically literate, but even beyond that, to be biblically fluent. And that fluency for me, I know it is for you, has been decisive because it brings it brings the scriptures to life when we proclaim that. And, and I don't think we do enough of that. So immerse yourself in the study of the Word of God, uh, and, and He will instruct you. The scriptures will, will, will teach you these fundamental principles uh, for life and for living. And then third, to your point, just do it. And I say, before you knock on doors of neighbors and others, strangers, how about you knock on the doors of those who live within your own household? Yeah. I love practicing. You know, I, I've got six kids, and with each of them, throughout the years, I have sat down and have shared the gospel with them. I have an eight-year-old, my youngest at home, and we talk about what he learns. He goes to parochial school. We talk about you know the various things that he learns about the faith. And he has these great questions. And it provides me an opportunity to kind of break down the gospel, the kerygma, to the level of an eight-year-old. And that for me is so helpful 
because it gets me away from all the jargon and sophisticated language. If you can turn to your eight-year-old and explain to him or to her in simple language these fundamental truths, and if they're able to walk away and say, I, I get that because I know what love is and I know what sin can do, you know, and that it's bad and it leads to unhappiness and, you know, they can put the pieces together. You do that with your family members, your children, your spouse. It's a training ground <laughs> for you to be able to then go beyond that to your neighbors and, and those around you to share with more boldness. But, but this is something that we can do, that uh, listeners out there, you can do this. Surround yourself, I think, as you said before, Brian, with, with like-minded Catholics who are desirous to grow in their ability to do that and practice with each other. Um, and trust me, over time... You'll get better. You're going to get but start. That. Go do it poorly. Go evangelize poorly, and maybe someday you'll get better at it. That's how I started, and I'm still pretty bad at it sometimes. Well, you know? and, you get the Samaritan woman, she didn't waste yeah. any time. She dropped her jug, and she ran into town and said, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Isn't the most sophisticated tagline uh, or, or, or convincing thing, but they saw in her a change. You don't know how that speaks to someone. Yeah, yeah. they saw in her just a, a genuine joy that they scratched their heads and said, okay, well, we're going to go see about that man that she talks about. And she was able to lead others to Christ. And so I love what Pope Francis, who you've quoted several times here in Evangelii Gaudium, you know, he uses that example. He says, immediately she went and began to witness. And so for, for us, what are we waiting for? Yeah, we don't need much time or lengthy training. No, I exactly. Mean, we need confidence and courage, I think. You know, so conviction, courage, and confidence. Those are yeah. my three C's I talk if about. If you've a lot. encountered Jesus, <laughs> that's it. You know it matters, and you've practiced, and just go do it and, and you'll get there. All right. This is a beautiful conversation. Hopefully we can all leave a little more inspired to just proclaim the love of Jesus, the name of Jesus to those that we walk with in our day-to-day -day lives. Can you maybe just close us in a prayer for uh, sure. conviction, courage, Absolutely. and confidence? Absolutely. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, amen. Come, Holy Spirit, Lord and giver of life, we pray that you would pour out the abundance of your grace upon us and vivify in us, enliven in us, a holy zealous animarum, a zeal for souls. Fill us with that holy hunger to be able to witness and to share the good news of salvation with others. Fill us with courage and with holy boldness, what the church calls the paresia, a holy boldness that will enable us to, without reservation, share the love of Christ and the gospel of salvation with others. We ask all this through Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. Go and make disciples. <laughs>